morning. Philippians chapter 1. We're back. Verses 27 through 30. Page 981 in the Pew Bible. I didn't check the printer before I printed my sermon, uh, so I ended up with pink paper. So, happy Mother's Day. You know I'm a bit of a holiday Scrooge, but hey, pink paper for Mother's Day. So, there you go. Philippians 1. 27 through 30. Uh, Andy and Joanna, thank you. Uh, those last two songs we just sang are two of my current uh, favorite songs. Uh, All Must Be Well. That's what we're defining joy as. This, this settled, deep conviction that because of Christ, all is well. It is an objective, fixed fact. We're going to see some more of that here this morning. If you were here last week, we attempted to unpack one of the most important sentences ever written, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we saw how that phrase is literally a matter of life and death. So we looked forward at how Jesus and the gospel changes death. Death becomes deliverance. Death becomes gain. And then we looked presently at how Jesus and the gospel changes life now. We saw that to live as Christ means a life lived entirely centered on Christ, and then how a life centered on Christ will manifest itself largely in a life centered on the people of Christ, the church. We're going to see some more of that again today, because that's what Paul turns next to address. Verse 27 is a transition point in the letter. Up until now, Paul has been largely talking about himself. He has been updated, the concerned Philippians, about the things that have happened to him. They've heard that he's suffering. They've heard he's in prison. They love him, so they're concerned for him. And so he writes this letter first to alleviate that concern. He writes about all that's been going on with him and how it's actually all only served to advance the gospel. And so in that, whatever's happening to him, he'll rejoice. Because life for Paul is the gospel. It is Christ. So even if he dies, he doesn't care as long as Christ is glorified. Paul's life is entirely Christ-centered, which then makes him entirely church-centered. And so now, after having updated them on his situation, he's now starting to turn to address their situation. Enough about me. Now about you. Paul has proven to them that for him to live is Christ. Well, now it's the Philippians' turn. What would that look like for them and for you to live is Christ? Well, we're going to see that it looks like a life, uh, like a manner of life worthy of the gospel. We're going to see that true gospel confession results in true gospel conduct. Without true gospel conduct, there is no true gospel confession. And so we come now to an important passage that I'm thankful for. I've been really challenged and convicted by it this week. There's great confusion, I think, in churches today on this point. I've mentioned before, last week even, my great concern about cultural Christianity, which is the tendency today to profess Christ without actually possessing Christ. It's the idea that we can claim to believe in Jesus without it actually being true for us that to live is Christ. It's the idea that we can believe in Jesus without living a manner of life worthy of the gospel. And so Paul says one thing, only this, forget about me, forget about everything else, only 
Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What does that mean? And we get confused because we know that we cannot save ourselves. We know that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We know that it's something that God does, not us. But there's great confusion then about how that relates to what we do, to holiness, to obedience, to works. Well, we're going to see some of that relationship teased out this morning. It's fairly simple, though we tend to complicate it these days. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 explains this relationship for us. We love the first part. We know the first part. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. We get that. But it keeps going. And we forget the second part. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, that's the relationship. That's what it means to live a manner of life worthy of the gospel. It means to walk in the good works that God has created for us. Grace, in that verse, produces faith, which then produces works. Works that can be seen. Works that evidence. Works that manifest the faith that manifests the grace. It matters to God how you live your life. Sometimes I think we believe that grace means it doesn't really matter what we do. By no means, Paul would say. Grace means that it matters even more what we do. Grace does not lower the standard. Grace enables us to meet the standard. Grace does not mean no effort. Grace empowers the effort. Grace ensures that the effort will not be for nothing. Grace works. Grace produces graciousness. Obedience is not optional. So Paul here says that there is such a thing as a manner of life worthy of the gospel, which also then means that there is such a thing as a manner of life not worthy of the gospel. So the question our text presents for us is pretty simple. What is this manner of life that is worthy of the gospel? What does that look like? And then personally for you, do you have it? That's what we're looking at. A manner of life worthy of the gospel. It looks like a lot of things. Uh, that could be like a summary statement for all that is required in Christian living. It includes every teaching, every command of scripture. But Paul's going to narrow in and focus on a couple of specific ways that such a life will play itself out. But before we can look at a life worthy of the gospel, we have to first make sure we understand what the gospel is. We first have to make sure we understand what makes that gospel of great worth. We have to start there, or we could go way off. It's the worth of the gospel of Christ that demands a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And not only is it the worth of the gospel of Christ that demands a life worthy, but it's the work, the worth of the gospel of Christ that then generates and produces and creates the life. Worthy. So we're going to have to see that first. So we'll start off by looking at the gospel of great worth. Then we'll be ready at the end to look at the life worthy of the gospel of great worth. Uh, we're going to focus on three things that Paul gives us in describing this manner of life. We're going to see that the worthy life is corporate, it is steadfast, and it is struggle. A, life man, a manner of life worthy of the gospel is corporate, steadfast, struggle. Let's read First, I've been sick all week, so I have no voice, so pray that for the next hour, 
joking. 55 minutes uh, that God will preserve my voice. Uh, pray for me. But let me read you the passage first. Here's the most important part. This is God's word. My words are supposed to explain and match these words. So let me read for you what Paul says in first in Philippians 1 verses 27 through 30. This is God's word. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conduct that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Again, let's, before we get into the word, let's go to the Lord and let's ask for him to work through that word um, as we begin. Let's pray. Father, we need you. Every hour we need you. This hour especially, uh, we need you. Father, we can accomplish nothing without you uh, working now through your word. Father, we need your spiritual aid to open our eyes to see the wonderful truths that you have contained for us here in your word. Father, we want to see the great worth of the gospel, the great worth of the Christ of the gospel. And we want you to take that wonderful truth and use it to shape and to form in us a manner of life that is worthy of that gospel of great worth. Father, I cannot do that. Uh, we cannot do that in ourselves. Father, only you can do that. And we believe that you do that as you work by your spirit through your word. Um, so do that now. Father, we ask also physically uh, for you to help uh, sustain, strengthen uh, my voice. And I pray that it would not be a distraction as you direct our gaze uh, to Jesus Christ in these next few minutes. <clears throat> we ask and we pray all of this only in his name. Amen. All right, so we start with the gospel. And we have to start with the gospel. I have to start with the gospel because this part must be clear. I've already mentioned my concern about cultural Christianity. I've mentioned my concern that some of you understand what it really means to be a Christian and how some of you may not be. But, but, there is great pastoral temptation. And I, I feel it in a text like this. Right now, I'm trying to resist it. I feel the pull of it. I'm probably doing it a little bit. But there's a great pastoral tendency and temptation to, to hold up the law and to take a list of things that we're about to see that, that characterize a life worthy of the gospel and then beat you over the head with it and try to make you feel awful and try to bludgeon you into believing that you are not a believer. Now, listen, Scripture does give us tests and signs by which we are called to check ourselves. There is such a thing as the Christian life. There is such a thing as false faith. Jesus does say in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Can't explain that away. 1 John 2, 3 does say, by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Verse 6, whoever says he abides in him, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 3.10, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. There's no way to get around these verses. They're clear. They're simple. 
The Christian life is the obedient life, is the commandment-keeping life, is the practicing righteousness life. If your life is not marked by an increasing obedience to God's word, a desire to grow in that obedience, and a new changed life, well, then you're simply not a Christian. It's not manipulative browbeating to simply state Scripture. But if I'm not careful, there is great risk that you will mishear me in all this. Right, if I only, if this is my only approach, there is great risk that you will hear me and think, okay, the Christian life is the obedient life, therefore I better get my act together and start being more obedient so that I can then be a Christian. There is a great risk that we look at these marks of the Christian life, you hear me say that if you then do these marks better, then you will be a Christian. No. Let's be clear up front that that is not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying, and forgive me if I ever had implied that. This is why, as we turn to this next section of the letter, there haven't been any imperatives yet, well, the imperatives start now, and they come in a great flood. These commands, these markers of the Christian life, we have to first start and be very clear with the gospel, because that's what Paul himself does and always does. We have to see that a worthy life is based first on a worthy Christ. A life worthy of the gospel is based first on the gospel of great worth. We've got to get this gospel right um, if we're going to have any hope of understanding everything that follows. So look, just look over chapter 1. Look at it real quick and see if it stands out to you. This gospel thing seems to be pretty important. Verse 5. Thanks for their partnership in the gospel. Verse 7, they are partakers with Paul in the defense of the gospel. Verse 12, what has happened to Paul has served to advance the gospel. Verse 16, Paul is in prison for the defense of the gospel. And so now, for the fifth time, in a few short verses, Paul is calling for a life worthy of that same gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15.3, Paul explicitly states that the gospel is of first importance. Well, here he implicitly relates that the gospel is of first importance by his continual repetition of it. What is this gospel of first importance, this gospel of great worth? We want to make sure the gospel is preached in every sermon from this pulpit. This week, we're getting to it at the beginning rather than the end. So let's run through this. And believers, you need this just as much as non-believers. You may know that the Greek word for gospel that he's already used five times is euangelion, from which we get our word evangelical or evangelism. And the word is made up of a prefix meaning good and then a root word meaning message or news. The gospel is simply good news. What do you do with good news? You announce it. You proclaim it. It's good. And so you want to declare it. Back at the time when Paul was writing, when a king was victorious, there would be an announcement of, of euangelion, of good news. The enemy has been defeated. The king has been victorious. You are free. You are safe. Celebrate. Rejoice. Good news. The gospel is first and foremost good news. Monday was, was doctor day uh, for all four of our girls. Wow, Melissa always schedules 
it for my day off on Monday, so I have to, and get to, I mean, to, to go uh, with them. Uh, I'm kidding. I, I need uh, to be there because of the shots. 1 Peter 3, 7 uh, refers to women as the weaker vessel. We get all uppity and offended uh, by that verse these days. Uh, it simply means that women, in general, are physically weaker than men. Right? God made men and women different. Common sense. It's obvious, though our culture is very confused about this basic idea today. Anyways, I need to be there to full body hold the girls uh, for their shots. So Melissa won't go on shots day without me. And Monday was not only shot day, but it was blood work day. And blood work is even worse. Shots in and out, boom, and you're done. Uh, for blood work, the needle sits there. They miss a vein. They seem to wiggle around just for fun uh, sometimes. It's, just, it's not a good time. So we've been preparing the girls for days uh, to get ready um, for this, trying to prepare them because it's a traumatic experience. Emma's first. She's the oldest. They do the height. They do the, the weight. They do the blood pressure stuff. And I watch it and I see the doctor like, what in the world? And they look at it a second time. She's anxious. The dread is building. She and I head in alone first to talk with the doctor. And good news, Emma, you don't have to get blood work today. And if you could have just seen just the relax, like her whole body and the eyes and the looking at me with the relief and with the pure joy, she completely changed. In fact, after we had talked with the doctor and the doctor had checked her out, the doctor wanted to take Emma's blood pressure again because it was so crazy off the charts uh, the first time. Her, her blood pressure, her heartbeat, her heart rate was 141. Um, and like a normal range is like 70 to 100 for a kid, right? Uh, so the doctor's like, hey, we need to check this out again. Again, everything was fine. Good news. Right? And so there was calm and relief and relaxation and joy. There was no good news for the other three. Um, but, so it was rough. But there was at least good news for Emma. It was good news that caused great joy. That's what good news does. Luke 10, Luke 2.10, as the King James puts it. We only read it at Christmas. There is an announcement. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. The angel, the angelos, the messenger, brings the euangelizo, the, the good news, which brings great joy. And remember what the book of Philippians is about. It is gospel generated joy. So there in Luke 2, we see an announcement of this gospel and we see that this gospel brings great joy. So what is this news, this announcement, this message? Well, the angel goes on. The angel tells us what it's all about. It says, for unto you this day, it unto you was born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. That's, that's the gospel. People get really confused and get all complicated. It's the redeeming the culture. It's God's restoring all things. No, that's it. Savior. It's the good news that announces what God has done to save sinners. It's the good news of salvation provided by God. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised. That's the gospel. 
The gospel is Christ, the Son of God, announced by the angel, has come. God himself has come. He has become man to live the life that we couldn't and to die the death that we should have. He has come to die for our sins. And so this good news starts off first with bad news that we are all of us sinners. We have all of us rejected the God who loved us and who created us. The Bible calls this rebellion, uh, calls this uh, rejection and rebellion against the king. And it calls this sin and sin is a crime and crimes must be punished. God must deal with evil. Nobody wants a God who is not just a God who does not deal with evil. We just want a God who does not deal with, with our evil. But he must, and he will. So our sin separates us from God and demands our death. Our sin against an infinitely good and holy God is so great that there is nothing we finite wicked sinners can do about it. So the bad news is really, really bad. But that's what makes the good news really, really good. God himself has done what we ourselves could never have done. God's provided the salvation that we need, and he has provided it by providing his very son. You owe death. Jesus came to take that death. And so the good news is that God has done everything that is required for you to be saved. He's provided the payment. He's provided the sacrifice. He's provided the death. The gospel is that he does it, not we. It is news about what has been done for us to rescue us from our sin. And what do you do with news? You believe it. You receive it. You see, the whole world, every other religion is united on this one point. Everything else is telling you and giving you something that you must do to be saved. Everything else is giving you advice or instruction. And not even good advice or instruction, but bad advice and instruction. It is only the gospel that is the announcement of the good news of what God has done for us to save us from our sin. Again, so the response is not to do anything. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. You receive it. Which is why we say this is all grace. It is all the gift of God. Skip down to verse 29. Look at verse 29. How do you get this good news, this gospel Paul keeps talking about? How is this applied to us? Notice he says that it has been granted to you. That word is the verb of grace. It has been given. It has been graced to you. Well, what has? Well, first, that you should believe in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We're called to receive and to believe. And that is called faith. It is trusting God, confident that Christ is who he says he is and has done what he said he would do. Only believe. If you do not know Jesus Christ today, that's the one thing you need to see and hear and do. See your sin, see the death and hell that it deserves, and then see the amazing gift that is offered to you this day in Christ. Receive and believe. Turn from sin and self to life and Jesus. And then notice in verse 29 there, and delight even more in the fact that even the belief itself, the faith, is the gift of we're turning to look at the works. But this is what we've got to get right 
first, right? When we're talking about salvation, about how to be saved, the works don't work. That's what sets this and Christianity, the good news of the gospel, apart from every other religion. And that's what makes this gospel uh, such um, wonderfully great and of infinite worth. Again, I want to emphasize the first thing, believer and non-believer, that you need to see is you need to understand that Christ is worthy. It is that he has the great worth. He has the greatest worth. It starts with seeing and delighting in him. This is the fountain. This is the source. If we get to the markers of a life worthy of the gospel, and you, like me, are going to see a great lack of these markers in your life, the answer is not first to try harder. And that's especially not the answer if you're not already a believer. Both parties must start with Christ. The answer is to dive deeper into him. He is God. He, in his infinite transcendence and majesty and power, has clothed himself in frail humanity. He suffered and he died for you. It's, it's unbelievable. It's, it's the best news of all. If you tire of this news, you don't really understand it. It's everything. It's he's everything. And so it must start with seeking him and with knowing him and seeking to better understand what the gospel is and seeing uh, the gospel for its infinite worth and believing and resting in him. The life worthy of the gospel starts first with the gospel of infinite worth. Everything depends on this. Let's get to point number two, finally. Here's the life now. It's the worth of the gospel that both demands and generates the life worthy of the gospel. Worth, the Greek word for, for weight or to weigh. It means, it means worth that matches actual value. And I think about a scale and not a digital scale that you uh, get on in the morning uh, in the bathroom and feel depressed about. But think about uh, a balance. Right? There's something on one side. There's something valuable. There is gold. It's, it's heavy. Uh, how much is it worth? Well, you set a quarter on the other side on the scale and nothing happens. It won't budge. The worth of the quarter does not match the actual value of the weighty gold. You would need a whole bunch of heavy quarters to equal that weight, the, the value of the gold. A worthy life is a life that matches. It's a life that reflects and demonstrates the worth of the gospel. And so, again, before we start seeing how short we fall, before we uh, fall into our natural tendency to beat ourselves up because of the worthiness of our lives and, and how short it seems to fall of the worth of the gospel, I don't want you to miss the first thing that's obvious, but it's easy to miss. According to Paul, you, Christian, can live a life worthy of the gospel. It is possible. And we need to stop there and meditate on that fact because you're not amazed by that fact. And you should be amazed by that fact. I, Matthew Shores, right there alongside Paul as chief of sinners, can live a life worthy of the gospel. I, 
who can't even go a day, much less an hour without sin, can live a life worthy of the gospel. I who cannot even preach a sermon on the grace of the gospel of God without sinning, I, even though my best deeds are shot through with sin, can live a life worthy of the gospel. And you, if you are in Christ, no matter how weak and sinful you feel and are, you can live a life worthy of the gospel. I just want to do a whole sermon on that. I haven't gotten through the first four words yet. Um, but, but listen, if you're not stunned by this fact, you don't understand what this means. Consider this in this light. John the Baptist. John the Baptist, whom Jesus himself declares in Matthew 11, 11, that among those born of women, among men, there has arisen no one greater. John was better than you. John was better than me. In a sense, Jesus calls him the greatest of all men. But what does this John, the Jesus declared greatest, think about himself? Matthew 3.11. John didn't even consider himself worthy to carry the sandals of Jesus. John, not worthy to carry Jesus' dirty sandals. Yet, here, Paul says that you can live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus. You can live a life uh, worthy of the gospel that is of infinite worth, worthy of the gospel that is about the God of infinite worth who took on flesh to live and die in the place of sinners. You can live worthy of that. You can live worthy of him. That's amazing. And how amazing that God would count anything that you or I do worthy of his gospel of infinite worth. How is this possible? Again, it's only grace. We are able and we can and we do so little. Yet, God can and does count that and count you worthy. First off, what a wonderful grace this is, that this is possible for the believer in Christ. And that's why Jesus can go on right after saying that John is the greatest born of women to say in the very next verse, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That's me. <laughs> that's how I feel. And yet Jesus says that the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than than the greatest. What? How? Again, only grace. It's because of the privileged position that we find ourselves in. A position more privileged than John himself, who himself saw and talked to and baptized Jesus. We are more privileged than him because we come after the cross, after the resurrection. We have received the full revelation. We have received Christ. We've received the Spirit. What he and all the prophets understood only in part, we understand and possess in full. The amazing grace that we have been given. We should count ourselves richly privileged. And again, so as we turn to look at these particulars for our last few minutes, you must first see and delight in the fact that, Christian, you can live a life worthy of the gospel. This is possible. And we've seen from verse 29 that God has granted us 
He's graced us with the gift of the very faith we need to believe. But 2 Peter 1.3 goes even further and says that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You have been given all things that you need uh, to live a life of godliness. You can change. You can resist. You can fight. You can kill that sin which feels so formidable because you've already been granted all things. The verse tells us how. Through the knowledge of him who called on us to who called us to his own glory and excellence. So it's through knowing him, which happens through the word. You have it, so use it. And it's for this reason. It's this wonderful, comprehensive, all-supplying grace of God that we then should make every effort, as Peter says, and we then can live a life worthy of the gospel. So we've got to see that the walking worthy of the gospel is dependent on the wonderfully great worth of the gospel that gives us everything. So it's knowing him, and it's knowing who we are in him. It's his identity, and it's your identity in him that makes all this possible. Look again at 27. Look where you see it. Where you have their manner of life, depending on your translation, it may say uh, something uh, different. Uh, in the King James, you may see your, your conversation. And I mentioned in the email, they used the word differently uh, back then. Conversation back then meant conduct. Just not how we talk, but everything. How we live, how we walk. But the Greek word technically is the word we get our word politics from. And so most literally, the word can mean live as a citizen. If you peek over to chapter 3, verse 20, you'll see Paul say that our citizenship is in heaven. It's the same word. So what he is saying is that as citizens of heaven, as members of Christ's kingdom, he's simply saying, now live like it. In the New Testament, ethic is pretty simple. It is be who you are in Christ. Again, you're on the right track, baby. Not you were born this way. No, that's a disaster. But in Christ, you're on the right track, baby. You were reborn this way. You have been made new in Christ. And so the New Testament ethic is simply live like it. You are a new creation in Christ. So now act like it. Be who you are. And so look, there's the... Giant, long summary phrase, most important phrase. Uh, what does it look like? There's the foundation. It's only grace. It's only the gospel. What are some of the quick things that Paul tells us that this looks like? There's a bunch, but I think he focuses on three things that I want you to see, and then we'll unpack on the weeks to come because he's using this to get us to chapter two. That's where we're trying to drive and get to. We're going to look at three things. This manner of life worthy of the gospel looks like corporate it looks like steadfast or steadfastness, and it looks like struggle. Back to verse 27. Look at it again. Whatever it looks like, it first looks like something corporate. Nobody? No? All right. Early college, something corporate was like one of the biggest bands. Nobody liked something corporate back in the day? I used to love uh, something corporate. Um, there was like a pop punk rock group with kind of hard rock alternative music, but then piano. And I love piano. And so it was great stuff. Sorry. Anyways, no point. Uh, something 
corporate. We've got to emphasize this. Because when we think of a life worthy of the gospel, we naturally almost exclusively think in individualistic terms. Right? We right away we think about me and Jesus, or just, just me and my Bible. We think about quiet times. Yeah, not my favorite term. I talk during a good chunk of my quiet time, so it's not very quiet. Uh, we think about personal, spiritual disciplines. Right? When we think about his manner of life, we think about all these things individually we are called to do to relate to the Lord. And again, all those things are good. It does include those things. The Christian life must include those things. It is relationship with the Lord. He speaks to us and he relates to us only through his word. So the Christian must be engaged with God in his word. But this is not just that. We often stop there. We think individualistically. Paul thinks corporately. Whatever a life worthy of the gospel is, it must first be something corporate. It is something communal. It is something shared. Where do we see that? Look at the text. Again, grammar. I drew this out a couple of weeks ago, so we won't linger on it. Greek is an inflected language. That just means the word changes with different forms on the end to tell us how the word is used. It's confusing to us because English is not, doesn't do this. Um, but one of the main things that you'll see in these languages is the question of number. Is the word singular or is the word plural? It's clear in the Greek. It's not clear in the English. So in the English, we read verse 27, whether I come to see you, and we almost naturally think singular. So it doesn't show up, but in the Greek, everything in this passage is plural. Every you is plural. Every verb related to the Philippians is plural. It says, when I see you all, may I hear that you all are standing firm. Verse 29, it has been granted to not just you, but you all, that you all should believe, and on and on and on. It's all plural. We've got to discipline ourselves when we come to the commands of scriptures to think plural, think something corporate. The Christian life is a corporate life. And one of Paul's main concerns in this letter is to emphasize that this corporate life is also a unified life. Back to verse 27. We'll get to standing firm in a minute, but he wants them to do that, not alone, but in one spirit. We'll get to the struggle and striving in a minute, but he wants them to strive with one mind, side by side. He wants you all, verse 29, he wants them, verse 30, to be engaged together with Paul in the same conflict. The Christian life is the corporate life. And what Paul is doing here is starting to make his transition to one of his main purposes in writing this letter. Paul, like a good writer, is seeding the ground. He's preparing us to get to chapter 2, where one of his main arguments is unity. And in chapter 2, unity is going to burst to the front of the stage. Look at it quickly. 2-2, two, two, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Verse 3, nothing from selfish 
singular, solitary ambition or conceit, but in humility count others, plural, more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, look not only to your own interests, singular, but also to the interests of others, plural. The Christian life is a corporate, plural life. The Christian singular exists in community, plural. And Paul hammers this drum. So we're going to hammer this drum. Life in Christ is life in community. Only let your plural manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And then he harps on the corporate unified nature of that life. And so again, this is no different than this, what we saw last week. Paul said it last week, he said it this week, and he's going to say it in the next passage as well. Remember, we saw that for Paul, singular, to live is Christ. Well, what's that mean? We saw that it meant a life centered on Christ, which meant a life centered on the people, plural, of Christ. That means that as if we sang last week, hallelujah, all I have is Christ, hallelujah, Jesus is my life. That also necessarily means hallelujah, church is my life. Can church not building, church not an event. This is part of church, but coming to an event for an hour is not church. It's not corporate. It's not communal. It's not in the community that Paul is talking about here. Church is the people of Christ, and that becomes the focus of those who love Christ. To love Christ is to love his people. To love his people is to be actively engaged with his people. Listen, if that's not there, you just don't know. If I, you know, I sit at home and I do church online. No, that's not a thing. That's not real. I saw a new thing now. It's like a VR church where every week it's a different scene, like a top of a tower in Dubai, and you have an avatar, and you can go, and nope, that's not church. That's, that's not it. Um, no, church is a gathering of the people of God who exist to glorify God by loving one another and living their lives together. A manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ is only a manner of life with the people of Christ. A corporate life is a corporate community church life, and it has to start there. And we're, ne we're never meant to do this alone. This is just the basic definition of church. In the people of God gathered together for the purpose of glorifying God. How? By worshiping God, by encouraging one another, and then by evangelizing the world. If that's not fundamental to who you are and what you are about, then you are not living a life manner of the worthy, worthy of the gospel of Christ. It must start with the gospel. And that gospel is about God saving a people for himself. Is your manner of life characterized by concern for and participation in the people of God? It starts there. Listen, we struggle and we suffer. We experience all these things. And what's the first thing that we do? We, we pull back. We separate. And then we get confused about why things spiral and why things get worse. It's because we've separated ourselves from the very means through which God works and ministers his grace, which is only the word of God and is only the people of God. That's it. 
That is the Christian life, together with the people of God. And so Paul hammers this to the Philippians. You must be together, and you must be unified together. And listen, I don't need to stay here long, because we're going to be here for a long time, starting in two weeks when we get to chapter 2, and we're going to really look at this and what this means for Woodside Community Church. And again, what this means for most of our understanding of, hey, I do my church thing for an hour on Sunday, so I'm good. I got the shot in the arm, uh, so I'm good. Now it's kind of more like the blood work. <laughs> it sticks, and it wiggles, and it hurts a little bit, but it's good for you, um, and you need it. Um, a church life is a life manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So Paul wants them united. We're coming back to that. He wants them united together doing what? Second, it looks like corporate steadfastness. Look at the second part of verse 27. He wants them standing firm in one spirit. This standing firm is a, is a military term. And I've never experienced war. I, I cannot imagine. I've read a ton about it. I've seen a lot of movies. Uh, but there must be few things like the experience of standing on a line. Especially back in the day. Uh, old school warfare. Standing on a line. Waiting. Watching, holding, while a large mass of men with weapons intent on killing you runs straight at you. I, I can't imagine that experience. There's this great scene uh, in Braveheart uh, when the superior English force, right, it's, it's, it's the cavalry, uh, mounted troops, and they're charging the stationary Scottish line. Infantry, foot soldiers, an effective cavalry charge can just cut through and absolutely wreck a line of infantry in moments. And so it's just it's this super tense scene with the really good Scottish bagpipe music, the slow motion charge, and William Wallace keeps calling out, hold, they're closer, hold, they're closer, hold, they're closer. And there's a fourth one, it's agonizing, they're on them, hold, they're closer. And it's not until like the horses are there that he very, in a William Wallace way, screams, the now, and they grab the secret sneaky spears, and they take the guys out. And again, it's just this amazing scene, but they're standing still firm as the enemy sprints at them and gets right here. That's steadfastness. Standing firm. God, Paul says it again in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm. Thus, in the Lord, beloved. And so this steadfastness then must include courage. Look down at verse 28. He also tells them, do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. So a worthy life is a corporate life, and it is a corporate life that is also a steadfast and courageous life. And think about that. That then necessarily implies that a worthy life is going to be an opposed life. Do not be frightened by your opponents. There is no need to be steadfast and courageous unless there is something against us. Unless there is something which we must stand against and not fear. The Philippians, as we're going to see, were facing persecution. The Philippians were facing false teachers. A life worthy of the gospel is one that stands strong in the face of 
of both. It stands firm in the gospel by resisting and rejecting the lies of the false teachers. It refuses to budge from those core basic gospel truths that we just looked at. It refuses to abide anyone who twists and perverts or adds to that gospel. Stand fast in and on the gospel. But know that when you do that, you will be opposed because the world does not love this gospel. The world does not love this Lord. And so if you do love the Lord, the world will then not love you. There's a few things that the 21st century American church needs to accept more than this fact. And we need to stop trying to obsessively sell ourselves to the world, make ourselves more acceptable to the world, and convince them that we're just like them. We're not. And that's the whole point. First John 3.13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Jesus, in John 15.18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's what's happening to the Philippians. This is just a fulfillment of the words of Jesus. A life worthy of the gospel is a life that will face opposition. And so a life worthy of the gospel is one that must stand steadfast and courageous against these gospel opponents. And again, and finally, and I'll wrap up with this, this need to stand steadfast means that a life worthy of the gospel will be a life of struggle. Quickly, look back at the end of 27. He wants them with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's the word athleo. You know that word? That's where we get our word athlete or athletics. It conveys the idea of, of contest, of competition that requires great exertion and great effort. It means to fight. It means to contend. We've just seen that there will be opposition. Well, to stand against it means that we struggle against it, against the world, against Satan, against sin. And it's not just general struggle. He gets specific. Strive together for the faith of the gospel. How do you do that? What's that look like? Well, it's simply what we saw two weeks ago. This is again the advance of the gospel. This means that our struggle is not just a defensive struggle, but it's also an offensive struggle. Yeah, but we know Ephesians 6 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, and thus we know that we don't fight like the world. We don't fight with the world's weapons, but we fight with the word. We strive together for the faith of the gospel by protecting it from false teaching, and we strive together for the faith of the gospel then by boldly proclaiming that gospel to the world that hates it, but so desperately needs it. Guys, we've got to come into this thing. And Jesus says, hey, Count the cost. And not, hey, let me make this as easy and clear as possible. Just uh, every head bow, every eye closed. You say these words, raise your hand. All right, I see that hand. I see that hand. All right, you're a Christian. No, Jesus says, count the cost. He says, take this seriously. The Christian life is a fight. 
It's a struggle. There's no prosperity gospel here. There's no promise of health and wealth. But what's actually promised here is suffering and struggle. Look again at verse 29. We've already seen the wonderful news that God grants us. He graces us even with the faith by which we believe. We understand that. That's wonderful. That's great. Thank you, Lord, for gracing me with faith. But we don't get the second part. And we don't love the second part. It has also been granted, graced, given to you, again, by God, that for the sake of Christ, you should also suffer for his sake. Scripture actually calls suffering a grace and a gift of God in various places. And so we don't have time to get into that and unpack that. But what's clear here is that this struggle is going to involve suffering. Verse 30, again, same thing. Paul says, engaged, and what is he engaged in? The same conflict. Again, another Greek word, agona. It's agony. Paul's using another athletic word that refers to painful effort and struggle and toil. It later became the word for marathons. Agony. I hate running a mile. I have no conception of 26 of them. It's a good term uh, for that concept. But the point is that a Christian life, a life worthy of the gospel, it's a fight. The Philippians are experienced this. They're in the midst of the struggle. And so Paul writes this letter to encourage them to press on, to stand fast, to remain faithful to the gospel, to remain faithful to the one who has already struggled and suffered so much for them. So he says, look to Christ who has struggled already and struggle along with him, struggling for him, struggle rest, resting in him. And again, because you're probably wondering, I shouldn't skip the second half of verse 20. Here's the last thing. We see that this struggle is also a sign. It is a dual sign. Struggle can serve a positive, confirming sign to believers that they genuinely know Jesus. So if there's no struggle in your life, there could be no life. The fact that the world in some way is opposed to you is a sign that God is not opposed to you. Internally, the existence of struggle within you is a great sign that you have been made new and you are now at war with the flesh and the sin that remains. The new is fighting against the old. If that struggle does not exist, if that's not there, that's a bad sign. Because struggle is actually a sign of life. Which also means that those on the opposite side of the struggle, those opposed to the people of God, and thus opposed to God himself, that fact is a clear sign to them of their coming destruction. So to be opposed to God is obviously not wise. Uh, to be opposed to God is death. And it is there that we, we must Leave things with these two options, and there are no others. It is either destruction or it is salvation. And these are the signs of which it is. But as we saw at the beginning, again, let's be very clear. It is the gospel, it is Christ that determines which it will be. Is your manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ? This gospel of infinite worth. Because we now know that how you live is a revelation of what you believe. How you live is a revelation of what has worth to you. 
What is your life revealing? What has the most worth to you? Is it the most worthy Christ? And does your life reflect that? Christian, is your life one characterized by corporate, steadfast struggle? The gospel of great worth demands a worthy life. And it's the gospel of great worth that generates that worthy life. And don't just try harder. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And then, by the grace of God, resting and rejoicing in Christ, remember that you can live a life worthy of the gospel. And then, by the grace of God, Get started doing it. Courageous, steadfast struggle. That's a manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let's, let's pray. Father, my, my words are so insufficient. Father, I'm thankful that your word is infinitely sufficient. Father, I pray now uh, that your word would shine forth. I pray that your word uh, would be our focus. Father, I pray that you, by your spirit, would take your words and apply them to our hearts. Father, I fall so short in so many many of these areas. It is so humbling and convicting uh, to stand here and to preach and proclaim Uh, what a life manner, uh, what a manner of life worthy of the gospel looks like. Father, I know and I believe that mine, our only hope of such a life, is your uh, wonderful grace. So we thank you for providing that grace for us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, as we see that we fall short, Father, first, I encourage us for the great forgiveness that we have in Jesus. Point us to his uh, all-sufficient work in our place that covers um, even our failures in these areas. And Father, then use that not to lead us to complacency. Father, use that to then motivate desire and effort and struggle in us. As we grow in our love and our affection for Jesus, Father, I pray that we would grow in our desire to live a life that is worthy of Jesus Christ. Father, help us to do that. Take your word now and drive it deep into our hearts. Show us Christ through this word. And we ask and we pray all of this in his name. Amen.